Thank you. Praise God. And as you know from the book of Psalms, the Lord loves music. Good music, right? Music that's God-centered. So thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Catherine and Vitalia. I appreciate it. Well, my privilege is to open the Word of God. My privilege is to study the Word of God. Um, and so I think we have a glorious text here. So if you would take your Bibles or your phones or however you're inclined, I hope you have a book, but if you don't, I still love you. Um, Colossians chapter 1, please. Colossians chapter 1. Good stuff. meant to fix this. This is way too small for the way I do things. <laughs> anyway, bear with me. Um, so, Colossians chapter 1, I should like to read to set it into our minds. Verses 15 through 20. I don't think we're going to make it through to 20. It's okay though. It'll be good. Verse 15, the Word of God says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Verse 18, He's also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure, says the New American Standard, for all the fullness to dwell in him, finally verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, were the things on earth or things in heaven. The Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Paul to pen these words, which describe for us the Son of God. As the Lord of creation, verse 15 through 17, and the Lord of his new creation, his church, which is verses 18 through 20. In so doing, Paul, in describing Christ in this manner, he's correcting the errors of the false teachers protecting the believers from their corrupting doctrines, encouraging the believers to remain faithful to the Christ of the gospel that Epaphras brought to them, that Paul taught him, and that they believed. As in any and all false teachings, they subtly or not so subtly, they attack the person of God. They attack the person of Christ. They attack the person of the Holy Spirit. Most often, though, they attack the person of the Son. They attack Christ. And when they do, as in first century Colossae, they attempt to diminish his perfections. They, they want to shroud his glory. They want to shroud his greatness. They want you to think less of who he is than who he really is. They deny his full deity or they deny his full humanity because Christ is both. 100% man and 100% God, and the two natures do not mix. He is two distinct natures in one glorious, distinct person. You can't describe, you can't explain that other than just believe what Scripture tells you. But every cult, every false teaching attacks the person of Christ in his greatness, either his deity or his humanity. They want to then, in doing that, they diminish his supremacy. His preeminence, which means first place. To them, the Son is not equal with God because He's not God. To them, He's the highest or one of the highest of God's creatures, but certainly not God. That's Jehovah Witness teaching. He's the first of God's creatures and helped God create, but He's not God, according to their teaching. Some cults of our day teach that Jesus and Lucifer, which is Satan, are brothers, and through a series of events, Jesus earned the right to be Savior. I hope you see the blasphemy in that, because mm -hmm. to say that Jesus and Satan are brothers raises Lucifer up to be equal with Jesus. That's not true. 
And that's Mormonism. That's what they teach. That's not right. Islam. A billion Muslims of the world <clears throat> deny the deity of Jesus Christ. To them, he is a mere human. A great and godly man to them, but still a mere human. Not God. Also, they reject that he was actually crucified. It just seemed that he was crucified. And they come up with all kinds of different ideas we won't get into. Um, therefore, they then also deny the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. To them, he's a great prophet. Muhammad is greater. But Jesus is in the list of prophets that they supposedly speak highly of. Uh, but they deny his deity. Most mainline Christian denominations in Western world, Britain, Scotland, Ireland, United States, um, they deny Christ's deity. They deny his sinlessness. They deny the virgin birth, and they deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. A lot of Presbyterians, a lot of Methodists, a lot of Baptists will deny that. Okay? Um, I only mention those names so that you're aware of it, and you see it's across the board. It's not... It's not, not one group has the market cornered on false teaching. Right? <laughs> um, but mainline denominations, like all other false teachings, deny the deity of Christ. Therefore, they deny his supremacy. They deny his greatness. They deny his all-sufficiency. That's what they're attacking. Okay? Um, we can't leave the Catholics out. Don't want them to feel left out. They deny the sufficiency of his atonement because you must add your good works to his cross. Okay? And to assure your place in heaven, you have to do these good works. And if you're not quite sure you got her done, there's always purgatory. Right? Um, purgatory makes the system work, doesn't it? Because whatever sins you didn't deal with, God will burn them off in purgatory. I thought the cross of Christ was sufficient to deal with all my sins. Amen. It is. See, so all those systems have one thing in common. Whether they come, even though they come at it from different angles, they all are attacking, eroding, undermining the deity of Christ and what it means to be God in flesh and what it means that he's all sufficient for my salvation. See? And they want to destroy his supremacy without really attacking it. Okay? But don't be tricked. You know this, that the devil knows who Jesus is? He's not ignorant. He was, he's been in the very presence of the triune God. He's gazed upon the Son in his preexistent glory. He used to worship him with all the other angels, did Satan, until he fell. Satan knows who Jesus is. Since he fell in sin through pride, seeking the praise that is due God alone, Satan is jealous, and in jealousy, in hatred, he seeks to influence all of God's creatures, especially those made in his image, to worship him and not God. It started in the garden in Genesis 3. He wanted the woman to worship and follow him and distrust God. And it's been that way ever since. Okay? He is the ultimate source. Why well, I bring him up? He's the ultimate source of every false teaching. Everything we've mentioned, everything that's being dealt in Colossians, every false teaching around the globe finds its ultimate source in Satan, mm -hmm. the fallen angel and the archenemy of God and of humanity. Okay? Now, can you, would you allow me to take you through as many passages as I can? Um, and I want to show you what the Bible says about the false teaching because we have to know this and it's in the scripture so let's begin in 2 Corinthians 4 2 Corinthians 4 one verse and I'm, I'm going to go as fast as I dare um, through these different verses if you're not used to following or want to follow write it down just don't lose track of this because it's worth getting to 2 Corinthians 4 4 says it like this in whose case the God of this world, that would be Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Okay? So right there you have satanic blindness on those who are unbelieving. He goes on, so that the result of that satanic blindness, verse 4, is that they, the unbeliever, might not see 
the light, notice, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds the unbelievers so that they do not see Christ in the gospel as deity, as God, as the image of God. They don't see him as glorious. They see him just as whatever the world wants to say about him. Right? But Satan blinds them. That's his work. Okay? He does that through a myriad of reasons or ways. Go to 1 John, please. Or write it down. 1 John 4. Listen to what... The Apostle John writes, my son, my oldest son preached on this text this morning. I, I can't wait to go and listen to what he had to say. But 1 John 4, verse 1 at least, and maybe more, but verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. For what reason? To see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know. Look at that. By this you know. There's no... It's not convoluted. It's clarity. By this you know the Spirit of God. How's that? Verse 2. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. Okay? So you have false teachers. You have... Satanic blindness to the glory of Christ. You have false teachers coming and they are denying certain truths about Jesus Christ. Coming in the flesh actually. Actually being God. Actually being human. These different false teachers teach these false teachings. So, go to 2 Corinthians, please. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm not exhaustive in what I'm giving you, but it's enough, I think, to... Make my point. Can I say this as you're turning there? False teachers have not gone away. We're not, we're not so progressive in our, in our religiosity that there's no such thing as evil people with bad ideas. Okay? Satan has his minions everywhere and always will until God throws them to the lake of fire. Okay? They're around today. They're everywhere today. And they have access to you through that little thing that you call phone, if you're not careful. What are you listening to? Who are you listening to? You, you let the, the temptation, the, 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 the risk of, of false teaching through that device is more dangerous now than ever before. Right? Okay, 2 Corinthians uh, 11. Listen to this, uh, starting verse 1, just to get the context of this. I wish, verse 1, that you would bear with me, says Paul, a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you, Corinthian believers, with a godly jealousy, that's the right kind, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. But I am afraid, verse 3, that as the serpent deceived Eve, Genesis 3, by his craftiness your minds, notice, will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You see, he's, Paul is summarizing satanic influence right there. Just as Satan did to Eve, he wants to do to every single believer. And that's to divert them from a pure, simplistic devotion to Jesus Christ. He wants to convolute it. He wants to bring, it'd be like a wife who's unfaithful. That's what he's saying. Satan wants to bring and tempt you to follow someone other than Jesus Christ or together. Right? Look at verse 13, uh, 4, 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, there's only one, by the way, okay. who's true, whom we have not preached, that being Paul, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel, hetero gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Okay. Go down to verse 13. He goes on and says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves. Now stop right there. These are not well-meaning individuals who just happen to be following a wrong set of rules and ideas. When it's, do you see the intentionality in verse 13? These are false apostles. These are deceitful workers. They, they are disguising themselves. Putting on the mask. 
And what are they disguising themselves as? Apostles of Christ. There's only the apostles of the first century. There's no apostles today. There ain't going to be no more apostles. There's only been original apostles. Right? But even in this day, you have people disguising themselves purposely, putting on the mask to trick you. I'm an apostle. I'm a true servant of God. You see? Look at verse 14. Well, no wonder. That shouldn't surprise you. Because look what it says. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Angel of light. Satan doesn't show up with a pitchfork and horns. <laughs> he doesn't show, he doesn't come ghoulishly. He comes very attractive. He's, he's, a, he's a good looking dude, you know. That's why you don't have to worry about me. He's a good looking dude <laughs> with a red tie, nice suit, and a MacArthur study Bible. To win you over so he can trick you. You see? False teachers are everywhere. They're everywhere, right? Um, go to Galatians 1, please. This is all foundational to Colossians, I hope you remember or will see. But Galatians 1, the Apostle Paul, is very bold. And frankly, I think a lot of men today are, are not willing to say what Paul says here. In Galatians 1, but we need to get here. Verse 6 through at least 9 of Galatians 1. And if you remember Galatians, Judaizers, um, Jewish people who followed the laws of Moses and all the circumstantial stuff and all the, all the pomp, all the ceremony, all the rules of the, of the Mosaic law came to the Christians in Galatia region here and were telling them that faith in Christ is not enough. You have to add works to the faith. So you see they're attacking the sufficiency of the atonement of Jesus Christ. You have to add to it by your obedience to Mosaic law or you can't be saved. Paul writes this in verse 6. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort, twist the gospel of Christ. Verse 8. Look what he says. But even if we, Paul and Timothy and whoever, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he's to be, what's your text say? Cursed. Cursed. What does that mean? Go to hell. Go to hell. Paul says if you do that or someone comes and does that, they should go to hell. Can Christians say that? There's children here. Yeah, you have to. Love would say that to protect the people of God. Amen? We will be of that sort. Trust me. If I don't, you get after me. Right? That's the pastor's calling. Amen? One of, the, one of the callings is it's the negative side of things where you have to confront, you have to refute, you have to warn. There's positive, which I like the positive, right? Fellowship, and gracious, and encouragement, Barnabas. I like being Barnabas. But it takes Paul, too. You have to confront error because Satan wants, is a wolf. I don't, if, I don't know if you're used to farming language or not, but wolves with sheep is not a good thing. <laughs> right? It's good for the wolf, but it ain't good for the sheep. Right? So this is all about that. Okay? It's all about that. We Look at verse uh, 9, please. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he's to be damned. He's to be damned. Amen. Amen to that. So then go back to Colossians. Go back to Colossians. We learn from this epistle, Colossians. By the way, Paul's never been to this place. He's receiving information from Epaphras, but he's never been here. So Colossians is, is a result of the information that was brought to Paul while he was in Rome in his first imprisonment. And so he wrote this in response to the, the stuff that was brought to him. Okay? All right. So we learn from this epistle in Colossians 
that false teachers had come and peddled their wares amongst the believers here, and they were bringing so-called a greater Christianity. That is, they had greater knowledge that you needed. They had greater wisdom from above that you had to come to them to get. You see, they're like gurus. Um, they knew the mysteries of, of the, the dark places of God, and uh, you have to come to them. You have to receive visions. You have to worship angels. You can't trust the Christ of the gospel. This is what they're saying, okay? In order to be like them, you have to then follow them, and they want you to come to them to get this greater knowledge so that you grow. You see? It's very enticing. Which, what, who of us here as believers in Christ does not want to know Jesus more intimately? Amen, right? That's why it's enticing. You can know the deep mysteries of God. Move beyond this old stuffy book. Get to new revelation. You run like a scared dog when you hear that. Right? You run like you stole it. Get out of here. <laughs> so in essence, they're saying, right, Christ in the gospel is elementary. It's the first block here. It's the ground level. If you want to grow in the knowledge of God, you want to be more like them, you must follow them. Can I take you to chapter 2? And look at verse 16. Through the end of this chapter, I'm just going to highlight some things here. But here's, here's the heresy of the Colossians. Okay? Notice in verse 16, he starts with legalism. He says, no one's to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or a new moon or Sabbath day. That's Jewish law, Mosaic law. Um, that's telling you the false teachers were mixing in Mosaic Jewish law with this false teaching. Okay? It's works, you do something. You do something. You keep the Sabbath. You do the new moon. You do the festivals. Okay? Look at what Paul says in verse 17, these things of the Mosaic law mentioned in 16 are mere shadows of what is to come, you see, but the substance belongs to Christ, the, the real, the material belongs to Christ, do you see what he's saying, look here, see that shadow, this is, this, this, this shadow tells you that something's near, mm. But it's not the real thing. It's just a shadow. The law of Moses is the shadow. The real thing is Jesus Christ. I have Christ. I am not going back to the shadow. I have my wife. She's my bride. I'm not going to take a picture of her and go coddle it over in the corner when I got my woman right there. That's exactly what this is saying. Anybody that comes to you and tells you you must go back to Mosaic law and keep the Ten Commandments to keep your salvation is not from God. I'm telling you, it's not from God. It's a Galatian heresy. In Christ, you have the real thing. Substance. You see, that's what Paul's saying here. Look at verse 18. He goes from legalism, he goes to mysticism. Let no one defraud you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. And notice this in 18. And the worship of the angels. Oh, the false teachers were coming not only with Mosaic law, but oh, you want, you want to know the mysteries, you've got to go to angels and you get visions. Look what it says here in verse 18. Uh, worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Visions. How many people now are always having visions of something? And so what happens? It takes, it takes true believers, the danger here, it takes true believers, what visions do, if you're going to put yourself, make yourself susceptible, is that you're, you're thinking there's more to be known and this person has a vision from God than what God has already given me. That's what Colossians is refuting. Jesus Christ is supreme. And he's sufficient. Look at verse 19. Somebody read the first part of 19. What is the danger of the visions and the angel worship? What's it cause you not to do? Verse 19. Not holding fast to the head. Not holding fast to the head who is who? Who is the head? Christ. Jesus Christ. Do you see? Not holding. So Paul is writing and describing Jesus Christ in the letter of Colossians 
to refute the error so that the believers continue to cling to the head, which is Christ. Don't be deceived into abandoning Christ for someone else. Christ is sufficient. Amen. And everything the Colossian heresies was promoting, you find in the person of Christ. You want to know God better? Know Jesus better. Right? You want to please God? Know Jesus. You want to worship God? Worship Jesus. Right? You want to, you want to be sanctified in your life and live holy? Then follow Jesus. <laughs> okay. Um, and then look at where it finishes, just for the sake of time here. In verse uh, 21, just for sake of time, there is asceticism. This is the rigid treatment of the body. Okay? So you have legalism in 16 and 17, mysticism in 18 and 19, and then you had asceticism in verses 20 through 23. But 21 says, what is asceticism? Well, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. You have this real rigid view of your body, and you treat your body... Um, you don't allow it to uh, be blessed of that which God has provided. Doesn't Paul say in other places that the food which God provides is for you to enjoy? It's not for you to deny yourself. Okay? And in this context, don't touch, don't handle, so that you grow in godliness. This is their promise. Because look at what it says in verse 23. These matters which, I, which have to be sure the appearance... The appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement, how foolish, and, self, and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Right? It has the appearance of godliness. Boy, that's a serious believer there. Look at that. He never drinks nothing but water. <laughs> Eats nothing but bread. Right? Gets up at 4.30 every morning no matter what time he went because he doesn't want to waste a day. Right? Because he's afraid God's not going to be pleased. You see what I'm saying? We, we, we all have that predisposition to works. Colossians is written to encourage you, abandon the works and cling tightly to Jesus Christ. All right? So, all that to say, um, go back to Colossians 1. Um, incredible stuff. The supremacy of Christ should kindle afresh, appear in simple devotion, and should encourage us to cling to him. I want to pick it up in verse, I want to remind you from 15 to 17, he says in 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We said last time, in essence, and I'll just summarize it, that Jesus is God. And he starts his, his relationship with God is that he's the image of God. And he's the, he is the, the ultimate one of creation because verse 16 says he's the one who created everything. So Jesus is God in flesh and he is the heir of all that's been created because he is the one whom God used to create everything. Jesus is the creator. Okay. When you get to verse 18... He's, he moves in verse 18, notice, and he begins with his relationship, Jesus' relationship to the, to the new creation, to the people of God, which he says is the body. Notice verse 18. He is also head of the body. Um, this is cool. So cool to me. Um, he himself, the emphasis here, it's emphatic in the original text, he's emphasizing that this one is head of the body in the sense that there is no one else coming. There's no one else to replace him. He alone is head of the body now and forever. Okay? He has no rival. He is the head of the church solo. There's no popes. There's no pastors. There's no man to take that place. Jesus Christ is the sole forever head of the church, okay? There are not many heads when you look at that text. There's only one head. There's not many bodies. There's one body. And Ephesians 4 even emphasizes that. It says there's only one body, as there's only one spirit, and there's only one Lord, you see? But Colossians is emphasizing the person of Christ. So the supremacy of Christ is seen is that he is the image of God. He's the creator, and he is the head, the only head, of the body. Okay? All right. Now, when he calls himself, when Paul 
is moved to write this and say about Jesus that Jesus is the head of the body, isn't he showing how essential it is? Because a body without a head can't do a whole lot. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Christ is essential for the body's function. And isn't it interesting that God has allowed himself to be, I don't, I'm not going to use the word need, but the head uses the body to magnify himself. Okay? But the emphasis here is the body without the head is dead. Okay? All right. And you are in union with this head. So then the Son, Son of God, the omnipotent creator of all creation, who is also head of the body. So you have to ask the question, what does head mean? Right? There's two meanings in the New Testament. One is rule, like ruler, and the other is growth. In Colossians, go to 2.10 real quick, please. In 2.10, it says it like this. And in him you have been made complete, and he, Christ, is the head over all rule and authority. Okay? So the head meaning there is that he is the head over all rule and authority. Okay? That's also mentioned in Ephesians 1.22. You can just write that down. But if you go to chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 19, you see the second meaning of the word head, and it means growth. Look at verse 19. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. So, head means rule over, and it means, depending on context, the source of, okay? of growth. Okay? So Jesus Christ is obviously both. He is head as rule, gives guidance and rule. He's Lord over his church, but he's also the source of spiritual growth. Okay? And it's God who describes his relationship this way. God's describing this. Paul wasn't just kind of off the cuff saying this. The Holy Spirit moved Paul to write exactly what God wanted. And yes. God is describing his relationship to you and I in this manner. Yes. He is our head. Amen. Right? He is our head. It goes in the picture. How about in Ephesians 5 where the husband is the head of the wife? Mm. Right? Same thing. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of God is the head of Christ. And Christ is the head of every man. And a man is the head of the headship has this idea of ruling over, and it also, when it's used of Christ, he's the source. How about the head of the crick, or uh, creek? <laughs> the, you know what the head of the crick is? The head of the, head of the, Marcus, where is the head of the crick? You don't know? Mount Moore is the head of the crick. No. Yeah, the mountain's at the source. Yeah. At the source. Oh. See Montana, say, go to the head of the crick. <laughs> Right. Let's go find where that thing comes from. Go find the source. Christ is the source of the body. He's the spiritual source of spiritual growth. And he's also the sovereign ruler. So Jesus Christ is the, the, the source of all creatures' life. And so too of the new creatures' life. You and I are the new creatures in Christ. Apart from the head then, there's no life, there's no growth, there's no guidance, there's no function, there's only death. It's lifeless, okay? Jesus says of himself in John 14, 6, he's the life. Right? He is the life. 1 John 1 says that the Son is called the eternal life. He's the word of life in chapter 1 of 1 John, and he's also called the eternal life. So it is that Christ is the life of God. Therefore, as the head, he is not only the sovereign ruler over, he is the source of spiritual growth. Now, in the context of what we've been saying about false teachers, do you see why Paul starts here? He starts with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Why would you go anywhere else other than the one who is indeed the Lord of creation and the Lord of the church? He is the sovereign ruler over by God's appointment. He is the source of spiritual growth by the ascension out of the reality of who he is. Why do you go other places? Why should anybody go other places to seek greater knowledge of God? Spiritual growth. You don't need gurus. You need to get on our face before the Bible. 
and ask the Spirit to show us the truth and to give us the grace to walk out what he tells us. Mm -hmm. And he will tell you more about himself. He will teach you. He will teach you. Right? All right. John 15, 5. Quote. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Nothing. That's the idea. Another way of saying what he's saying here in Colossians is the head of the body. Now, so the son then, as we look at Colossians, back to one, is the life-giving sovereign ruler over the body. Okay? Look at what else he goes. He says there in verse 18, what does he mean by the body? He goes, the church. The church. Singular body, singular church. Ekklesia. Two words together in the Greek text. Ek means out of. Kaleo means to call. Called out ones. The church consists of the called out ones. Okay, Called out in this way. Summonsed. Re receiving a summons to go to court. That's the same idea. The church is made up of those whom have been summoned by God. Okay? Called out of the world into his kingdom. You've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is made up of those whom have been called out of one place into another or from one group of people to another. Yes? It's so specific. It's so special. The head of those is Jesus Christ. Now, go to 1 Peter 2, please. Just a couple places. 1 Peter 2. Look at one, one place, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Those are glorious truths and identifications of the people of God that Peter is identifying here. And then he gives the reason so that the purpose that God did those things, chose and the holy and such, is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, notice what it says, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is made up of those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay. Now go to 1 Thessalonians, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're in the body of Christ, this is true of you. Right? This is true of every person since God started calling people into his body. Alright. How privileged. How awesome. Look at verse... 12. He says here, he's exhorting and encouraging them in verse 11, coming down to verse 12. It says, so that purpose, you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Right? So you see, the call is effective. The call produces exactly what's intended in the call. In other words... What God intended in calling you is exactly what has happened. He called you when you were in darkness. He's called you out of darkness to call you into the light. He called you out of the kingdom of darkness into his own kingdom and glory. You're not somewhere in the process there. That happened at conversion. He called you out. And now you're in the kingdom of light. You're in the kingdom of God by his calling. You see, the church then... Ecclesia, the called out ones. You see? So that in Romans 1 6, Paul identifies every Christian as the called of Jesus Christ. It's so precise, so it doesn't apply to everyone. Not everyone on the planet is called in this manner. Only those whom God intended to go from this kingdom to his kingdom. You see? That's glorious. Because that's, that's the nature of the call. Okay. Um, go to 2 Corinthians, or Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians to the right, chapter 2. 
verse 13 and 14. Look at how this is. It's so glorious. Verse 13. But we should always give thanks, says Paul, to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God has what? Oh, when? Oh, for what purpose? Oh, it's a pretty sovereign God, ain't it? Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Look at the next verse. It was for this he what? Called you. How? Through his gospel. For what purpose? To gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not up to you. None of that's up to you. Every bit of that is up to God. He did the calling. He designed what it was for from here to there. What's the purpose and the goal of all that? Who receives it and everything? It's all of God. And it's through the gospel. Is that not glorious? The church then is made up of those who have heard the call of God and have, been, have responded. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I shall give you rest. Who's going to respond to that? The one whom the Lord is saying, come here, boy. Come here, girl. You know what the greatest picture of the call is? John 11. Lazarus has been dead four days. He's starting to stink. Because natural decomposition takes place. And the Lord Jesus Christ stands outside the grave of a dead man who's been dead four days. And he says, come here. And what happened? <coughs> he rose and came forth. How do you explain such a thing? That's a picture, man, of the church. The church has been called out of the grave of dead and sin, has been made alive and called to himself. He's the head of those people. You see? Paul is saying, why do you go anywhere else? Why be tempted to read anything else? Why be tempted to follow any other teaching other than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because in him you have the supreme one, therefore you have the sufficient one. He's all sufficient. You don't have to keep any laws. You don't have to not do this, do that. You have to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him. Amen? Amen. That's the gospel of grace. If you, if you work for it, what's grace needed for? You see, works and grace are diametrically opposed. The moment you add works to this, it's no longer of grace. It's either all of grace or it's none of grace. Do you see? It's that black and white. And the church is made up of those who have been graciously called, summons by the sovereign God to come out of the world to his son. Man. And he's the head of that. By his doing. Now. So then the body consists of the called and converted, okay? Because the call leads to conversion. Listen to some of these other titles, identifications that are applied to the believers. Just listen to this. It's not exhaustive. It's just things that come to my mind. The people of God are known as the elect of God, the chosen, the saints, born from above, born again, slaves of God, Sons of God, children of God, possessions of God, family of God, temple of God, the dwelling place of God, known as the bride of Christ, and here the body of Christ. That's glorious. Yeah? And it's all by his doing. Do you remember Romans 8.28? Go there, please. Romans 8.28. He kind of summarizes it here. Famous verse, probably every refrigerator here has it on there somewhere. There, there's a cup you put tea in. Right? My New American Standard reads like this in Romans 8.28. And we know. Don't you love? I like to know things. I don't like being left in the dark. The Lord says you can know this. Be convinced, Rebecca. That God causes all things. How many things? All things. And in the Greek, you know what all means? All things. <laughs> all things. All inclusive. Excludes none. Includes everything. Notice. God causes all things to reach a particular end. 
to work together for good. Okay? doesn't say everything that comes into your life is good. It says that everything that, that comes into your life, God massages and providentially, sovereignly works it for good. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> what it says. For good. For who? Everybody on the planet? Everybody on the planet? To whom does he do that for? Yeah. What does it say? To those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Amen. Who loves God? Only those born from above. Only those been regenerated. Only those who have been born again. Because then the Bible say, all hate God. Yeah, until God saves you. Yeah. Changes your nature. Changes your, 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 your disposition towards him. Mm -hmm. You've been reconciled. Made peace. Once enemies, now has been made peace through the blood of his cross. I now have peace with God. I now love God because he's changed my heart. He's poured that into you, Romans 5, right? You now love God. Not perfectly, but before you didn't give a rip about God. Now you love God. This is saying God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and those called according to his purpose. Isn't it fascinating that love is, could, be, could be watched, right? Love is an action. Mm -hmm. And so he, I love how he balances out. He doesn't leave it up to our emotions or our impression because he balances with his part of the deal, which is the call. Mm -hmm. And notice, call according to his purpose. He has a purpose, an end goal in the call. Mm -hmm. The church is made up of the call. And what is the end goal? We saw it was to be in his kingdom, to be in his glory, to receive his glory. But verse 29 tells you in this context of Romans 8 specifically what he means. What is the purpose in your life? If you belong to God by sovereign calling, if you love God because you are born again, he's working everything in your life so that verse 29 happens. Look at 29. Tell me, what is the purpose of God? In verse 29. Conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed to the image of his son. That's his end goal. So that he be the firstborn among many brethren. So the church of which he's the head is made up, is the called out ones. He has summons you by the gospel. You know your summons because. You repent of your sin. You trust in Christ alone. You now love God. You love his word. You love to pray. Not perfectly, but there's been a change. And you love him. It's the bottom line characteristic of every true believer in Jesus Christ is that you love him. You cannot know him and be saved and not love him. Right? You just It's impossible. You can't know Christ and not love him. You, you know him and therefore you love him. And he's, he's poured that in your heart. Okay? The church is made up of those and he's the ruler and the source of the life for them. So Paul says, why do we go anywhere else? Mm -hmm. Don't fall prey to the, the visions of others. You don't worship angels. You don't need other messengers from God to, really, to tell you greater mysteries. You have Look at uh, where am I now? Colossians. Go back to Colossians. I'll go quickly. We'll be almost done. Look at what it says. In verse 18, he is also head of the body, the church. And then he, he kind of adds on here. This is amazing. Because he goes to his next description, which is another reason why you should hold fast to Jesus Christ, is that he is the beginning. Okay? Any other translations say differently in verse 18, where it says he's the beginning? He's the head of the body, the church, and then the next phrase. The beginning. Fascinating word. I, I didn't realize this until I spent time here. This word is where we get RK from, RK. It is, it, it, it's the same that's mentioned there in 116. 
Okay, notice where he goes here in verse 16. Um, all things created in the heavens and earth, visible with the thrones of the beings, rulers, authorities. Um, the word rulers there, that's this word. In chapter 2, verse 10 of Colossians. Same Greek word. I want you to see this. I don't know why the NES translates it beginning. Look at verse 10. The same word is used when it says he is head over all rule and authority. That's the same word. Okay? Same word there in 2.10. Um, he is the... He is the the beginning in this sense. He is he is he is the, 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 the originator. He is the he is emphasizing that he is the the prince. He is the it's translated in Acts three fifteen actually Prince of Life. And the word prince is this same word. So beginning he is ruler, he is source, he is it has the idea of first, first in kind, first in, first in source. He's the beginning. It's like Alpha Omega mm -hmm. in Revelation, okay? So what Paul's saying here is that Christ is the source of this new life of which the church consists. In the context of Colossians, Paul is emphatic, stating the truth in many different ways, that the supremacy of Christ is seen and that he's the head of the body and he is the ruler and source of the new creation. Okay? That truth destroys and refutes every false teaching. Amen. And if you look at verse 18 again, please. He moves on. And he says here, from the beginning and source, the next phrase in verse 18, describing Jesus Christ... Why you should cling to him is he is the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. We saw this word firstborn back up in verse 15 where it says firstborn of all creation. It, has, it, it, it means at least this, first in rank, first in position, first in privilege. He's the firstborn. He's the rightful heir. But also he is in the process the firstborn most often means the first who's been born, right? Well, it doesn't mean the first one created in verse 15. It means he's the preeminent one, okay? Here in verse 18, it means he's the preeminent one because he's the first one to ever be resurrected, never to die again. Amen. Lazarus was brought forth, but apparently he died. I didn't read anything. I haven't seen him. Right? So apparently he died, right? And, and others that have been resurrected in the Bible did not live forever. Christ, in 1 Corinthians 15, sake of time, I'm just going to roll here. 1 Corinthians 15, he's called the first fruits from the dead. Okay? That word first fruits is connected to the word beginning here. And when it says firstborn, he is the first one to be. Born from the dead, out from the dead. This is fascinating. I just this gets this jacks me up. Look at this again. He is the firstborn, verse eighteen, from the dead. Literally, <clears throat> literally, it says this: firstborn out of the dead ones, out of the dead ones. Now, what is that emphasizing? Listen to that. This is this is a distinguishing marker fact about Jesus Christ. He was once one of them in that he was with the dead ones. For three days, he was in the realm of the dead ones. The creator, sovereign ruler overall, became a man and actually literally physically died on the cross as our substitutionary sacrifice. And when he gave up his spirit on the cross, his body entered the realm of the dead ones. He entered the dead ones. On Sunday morning, with Easter Sunday morning, three days later, the power of God delivered the Son and removed him from out of the dead ones by making him alive. Okay? Literally, actually, physically, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, was delivered from out of the dead ones. Okay? This, this, it's, it's, it's graphic in its picture. He was one of many... 
And he's the first fruit to be removed from that realm. He's the firstborn from out of the dead ones. Now get this, hold on, hang with me. The risen Jesus said to Thomas, if you remember, see my hands, my feet, my side, it's me. It's actually me, the one who hung on the cross. The grave couldn't hold him. He has broken the bonds of sin and death. No one else could be removed from there. Only Christ, okay? Sin and death have been defeated. The Son has risen victoriously from out, from amongst the dead ones. He's now with the living. In fact, the angel even said to the ladies that came to the tomb, why do you look for the one who's alive amongst the dead? Jesus is not dead. He's been delivered from the dead ones. Okay? He's alive forevermore, never to die again. First fruits, firstborn, implies one of more to come. Or I wouldn't use the terminology. You see, first fruits in an agricultural world tells you what the rest of the field is going to produce by giving you a sample from the edge right here. Firstborn is implying that the rest of the dead ones, or at least a lot of the dead ones, are going to be raised in the same manner that Jesus Christ was. He's the firstborn of the dead ones. He has gone in, conquered, and been delivered. He's been removed. Okay? That only matters to those of us who trust in him. No one gets too excited about that unless they trust in Jesus Christ. Right? The world will look at you and say, you're a fool for believing that. Be a fool for Christ's sake. Right? You just ask them, whose fool are you? <laughs> Who's fool are you? Right? He entered the realm, conquered, has risen victoriously. Firstborn implies there's more to come. As we read in Romans 8.29, the Father has predestined a people to be like his son, so the son would be the firstborn among many brethren. Many brethren. The church is who he's talking about. We too will be raised from out of the dead ones. My body will not stay in the grave forever. On the day the Lord comes and the horn is tooted. First Thessalonians 4. And the dead in Christ shall rise. Is that not glorious? It's only true for those who are in Christ. Why would you go anywhere else? You see what Paul is saying, Colossians. Hold fast to the head. Hold fast to the head because he's the Lord of creation and he's the Lord of the church. He's sufficient for all. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 19, quickly. Well, 18, sorry. I have to finish 18. So that, okay, in verse 18, he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that the result or purpose is that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He just says it another way. He's just piling on these incredible descriptions of the Son of God. over, And they overlap, and they, and they give a little more light, and they overlap. But here he finishes verse 18. Why is this so? Why is Christ firstborn from the dead? Is God wanted him to have the preeminent place. There's none greater. Okay? In verse 19 he says, It was the, it was the good, Father's good pleasure, the New American Standard says, for all the fullness to dwell in him. All the fullness of deity. If you have all the fullness of something, are you lacking anything? No. No. In the body of Jesus Christ is all that is true of God. Which is amazing because Solomon said not even the heaven of heavens can contain you, let alone this temple we just built. But yet in the person of Jesus Christ, all of God dwells in bodily form. He's supreme. He's preeminent. Therefore, he is all-sufficient. Therefore, if you're in union with him, 
You are absolutely complete. You have no need for anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You hold on to him. Okay, finish here. Go to Colossians 2. Because of who Christ is, because of his glory, the totality of divine powers and attributes dwell with our Jesus. Look at verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's really, that's the, the, the exhortation of Colossians. Do you see? Look at it real carefully. As you have received him. So you see the word as it speaks in the manner of how did you do this? How did you receive? He's talking about when they were converted. When they were first converted. When they first repented and were converted to Christ. How did you do that? What were you like? What was your attitude? Was it not a simple, pure devotion to Jesus? A childlike faith? You didn't know everything about anything other than Jesus died for me, rose from the grave, and he's offered me salvation, and I trusted him. And you walked forward. And you said, no longer do I want the world, I want Jesus. That's what he's saying. In this Colossians, in the same way you have received Christ Jesus when you're converted, he goes on in verse 6 and says, so walk in him. Do you see what he's saying? In the same simple faith of conversion, I want you to continue to walk in that simple faith. Trust in the Jesus of the gospel. Man, that's good. So we exist to promote the fame of this Christ for the glory of God and the joy of all people. Because if you come to rely on this Jesus, you will know nothing but joy truly. Deep down in your soul, no matter the circumstances of life, you will have a joy that's a gift of God. Even in the midst of suffering and sorrow, you will have an abiding joy that's a gift of God. You can't explain it. You just experience it. And you praise Him. And you worship Him. He's the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of creation. He's our Lord. He's your Lord. Yes, yes. He has called you to Himself. What a God. What a God. Can I just finish in two, 9 and 10? Because I want to encourage you. Mm-hmm. Look what it says in 9 and 10. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And then the next phrase. And in him you, what? Have been made complete. Notice the tense of the verb in verse 10. It doesn't say you will be made complete. It says you have been made complete. You know why? Because you're in union with the one who is complete. Amen? Amen. So dear Christian, trust your Bibles. Trust your Lord. He loves you supremely. He's jealous for your affection. He is your best. He is your all. Don't follow lies. Don't be deceived. If you have to add anything to what Christ has done, it's not from God. If by your actions you take anything away from him, if they tell you that, that's not from God. Oh, i got to show you this. I'm sorry, i got to. <laughs> Chapter 2. You'll, it'll be worth it. Just trust me. 13. 2.13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision on your flesh, what did he do? Notice, please, the timing of everything here. When did he make you alive? When you were dead. Okay, all right. When you were dead, he made you alive together with him. And what's the last phrase of verse 13 in your Bible? Speak to me. Say it again. Say it like you believe it. (laughs) What does it say? All. Do you know that in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sin and are trusting Him as the gospel demands and you, and you are following Him as a new creature in Christ, He has done so many things, and one of them is this. You're forgiven of all your transgressions. So live like it. That doesn't make me licentious. That makes me holy. Because why would I want to sin against grace? 
Why would I want to sin against grace? Do you see how it's much more powerful when the grace of God governs your life of obedience than keeping rules, keeping rules, and if I fail, oh, I'm going to be damned and I lost my salvation. Get out of here. Christ saved you <laughs> eternally, perfectly, permanently. In Christ, that verse says, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And the next verse tells you how he did that. We won't get into it because I'm, I'm too long. But you know, I hope this is encouraging. I hope this, your, your Lord is like no other. There's none like him. We sing about it. Let us live about it. Let us pray. Let us pray. There's nothing more attractive than a person who is absolutely burning out for Jesus Christ. Because like... Like they used to say to George Whitfield in the 1700s, um, Franklin, Benjamin Franklin used to come listen to George Whitfield preach in Philadelphia. And there was a philosopher there named, uh, uh, I can't remember his name right now, but he's a famous philosopher. And he was on the Long Street, Market Street in Philadelphia. Whitfield would be down there preaching. And uh, Benjamin Franklin would back up and see how many blocks he could hear Whitfield preach. And I don't know how many city blocks it was, but it was a bunch. And so George, uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was a rank pagan, right? Rank pagan, mm -hmm. liked to listen to him preach. And so this philosopher came and said, Mr. Franklin, I didn't know you were a believer. I didn't know you believed these things. He says, oh, I don't. But he certainly does. <laughs> right? He would come watch this guy burn out for Christ because of the conviction of his soul. Mm. Beloved, we are in union with this Jesus Christ who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the sovereign ruler, creator over all the universe. Every demon, every angel, every element on the planet mm. is subject to him. And he's also Lord of the church. He's the head of the body. We are in union with him. We are complete in him. Follow hard after him. I have to stop. <laughs> Can we pray and then we'll do you last? Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. Take our feeble efforts, Lord, and bless your holy name. And to that end, we pray. Amen. Amen.